0: Hey, Jared, it's Chris Reback. How are you?
1: Hey, Chris, how are you? Can you hear me okay?
0: I can hear you okay, yep. So I am ready to go. If you are, we'll go probably about 20 to 25 minutes. That's perfect. Okay, so uh, here we go. Three, two, one. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Political Wire. Let's face it, there's a lot of political news out there, and there's just no way to stay on top of everything. That's why my friend, Tegan Goddard, does it for you. Tegan updates Political Wire what seems like 24-7. But did you know that he's got a membership program that offers readers exclusive analysis, a trending news aggregator, and no advertising on the site? And, thanks to the transitive property of Friendship, For Chris Reback's Conversations listeners, a special offer, 10% off an annual subscription. Just go to politicalwire.com slash chris for your discount, and now to the podcast. With 20 candidates and two Democratic debates spread over 48 hours this week, the 2020 presidential campaign season is officially underway. We know the process. For the next 16 months, candidates will debate, boast, fundraise, debate, and fundraise some more. Then, on November 3rd, 2020, we'll have the decision— The president will be chosen. But what about when we get a new president, not over two years, but in a heartbeat? When we don't elect our president following an intense 500 day process, but rather get our new leader instantaneously and by accident. I'm talking, of course, about the times when we've gotten a new president because the sitting one died. To answer the quiz show portion of our podcast, it's happened eight times in our history. John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, Andrew Johnson, Chester Arthur, Theodore Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, Lyndon B. Johnson. These surprise presidents have ranged from highly successful, Teddy Roosevelt, to downright disastrous. We're talking about you, Andrew Johnson. You also may be surprised to learn that while the Founding Fathers created an extraordinary system of government that, at least until recently, seems to have accounted for nearly every challenge— They spent precious little attention on the issue of succession, including, incredibly, leaving open the question of whether the elevated vice president was now acting president or actually, and in fact, president. So what does history tell us about these leaders, the process, our country, about what happens when accidents occur? Jared Cohen has written the New York Times bestselling book, Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. It's incredibly researched and better written. Cohen offers a unique look at our history and the many ways our country evolved purely based on chance, because an assassin or disease forced an immediate change in our land's highest office. More on Jared, whose background is as interesting as the book. He's the founder and CEO of Jigsaw at Alphabet Incorporated. That's Google's parent company. He also serves as an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, Cohen ran Google Ideas and served as chief advisor to executive chairman Eric Schmidt. From 2006 to 10, he served as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a close advisor to Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. And as if all that's not enough, this new book isn't even Cohen's first New York Times bestseller. It's an excellent conversation that I really think you'll like, but first, two items. One, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did, and especially with the podcast name change, it makes a big difference. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and, if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Jared Cohen. Jared, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So I was traveling the other day with my daughter, College Visits, and she asked what book I was reading. So I told her about Accidental Presidents and her immediate reaction, that's such a good idea. How do people come up with ideas like that? So I, I, so I showed her my tentative list of questions that I'd been working on, the first of which was, How did you come up with the idea for the book? Was this always a fascination of yours? So there you go. Inquiring minds, young and old, want to know the same thing. What made you write this excellent book?
1: So I love that uh, father-daughter conversation is the origin of the question, why did I write Accidental Presidents? Because my parents bought me a children's book when I was eight years old called The Buck Stops Here. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was one of those rhyming books, you know, page devoted to each president. And my poor parents didn't realize that I would have to uh, that I would basically become fixated on the deaths and the assassinations that happened to eight of our presidents. And so my parents had to have these heavy conversations with me as an eight year old. And the, the interest never went away. It manifested itself as collecting campaign memorabilia and locks of presidential hair, which is weird until you see it. And then when my wife was pregnant with our uh, our first child, I needed a nesting activity and I decided, you know what, I've spent my whole life obsessing over the eight times in history a president has died in office and now I'm going to finally write about
0: it. So why why is collecting presidential hair only weird until you see it? It, it seems to me like that it would get even weirder once I saw it.
1: Um, because it's so well framed and on my wall that it, it'll it'll obfuscate any sense of anxiety you have about why somebody would have locks of presidential hair.
0: Uh, well, I'll take I'll take your word on it. I mean, the, the stuff you've written seems you, you seem to have all your facts right, so I'll, I'll believe you on that. But <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I'm skeptical. It sounds a little creepy, and and I guess you, your parents were never like, "Gosh, wh- why didn't we just get the the kid a book on baseball or something?" It just you know would have been simpler.
1: Well, now, now, of course, you know, they're proud that, you know, the accidental president is out and their son is out there talking about it. But I, I will tell you, I mean, it's what, what's been fun about writing this book is I love history. I love politics yeah. and I'm constantly musing on lessons in leadership. And this book is a great way to combine Those three
0: passions. Terrific. So, so let's talk about the book. I guess my, my final note to, to what you've just said. Thank goodness you, you've done something where your parents finally have something to be proud of uh, about you. Everything up till now, you, you you haven't done that much until this book. So, you know, I feel, I feel terrific for them. (laughs) That's, that's fortunate. I know you're not going to comment on that. I know. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, I'll pass the
1: message along.
0: Yeah, we'll pass it along. So before we get into the, the specific leaders, and, and you're right about all eight of them, I think it's helpful to set the context around succession, the history and your paradigm for evaluation. So let's start with the history. Um, what is the Presidential Succession Act of 1792? And why was it unclear whether the vice president becomes president or acting president?
1: Yeah. So let's start with the framers of the Constitution um, who weren't very serious about wanting a vice president. They, They ultimately threw it in there at the last minute as an electoral mechanism where the person who got the second largest number of votes would end up as vice president. And then what was happening is that was yielding ties. And then the 12th Amendment fixed it. But the Constitution offers no clarity on whether or not the the vice president becomes president or discharges the duties as president when there's a vacancy um, in the Oval Office. Um, and so when John Tyler of Virginia, who's the vice president, um, you know, finds out that William Henry Harrison, the first you know president to die in office, dies after just 30 days, um, he spends his first months arguing with the cabinet and with Congress about whether he's an acting president or whether he is the president. And so there's been several attempts to iterate on what the Constitution says, beginning with the Presidential Succession Act of 1792, but it doesn't clarify this issue. It offers no provision for replacing the vice president. And all the Act of 1792 says is that if there's a vacancy um, in both the presidency and the vice presidency, the president pro tempore becomes an acting president until a special election is called. Um, and then is followed by the Speaker of the House. Now, throughout our history, we've iterated on this. So, in 1886, they got rid of the President Pro Tempore and Speaker of House as Speaker of the House as part of succession, and added the Cabinet. Um, and then Harry Truman in 1948 signs the another Presidential Succession Act that puts the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tempore back in the line of succession, but has the Speaker first and then the President Pro Tempore. But you don't formalize any of this until the 25th Amendment passed at the end of LBJ's administration.
0: It, it, it's in, incredible. And, and I mean, I guess you've been obsessing about this since you're eight. But for someone who's come to it recently through your book, um, it surprised me. Why did these framers who seemingly thought through everything, it, it's almost like they didn't think that portion, the vice president, you know, and and whether he is president or acting, that they just didn't think that through as much as they had thought through everything else. That was surprising to me. Were you surprised by it? Or was there the reason that they just kind of hadn't emphasized the vice presidential role in the first place, and it was more an electoral thing? And so why do we really have to spend a bunch of time thinking about, you know, whether it's acting or, or full?
1: Yeah, so in in writing, accidental presidents, I will say that this was my biggest frustration. Mm -hmm. I admire the founding fathers tremendously. um, And I can even give them a free pass for not getting all of the details in there. What I can't give them a free pass for and what was sort of endlessly frustrating and confusing is why there were multiple opportunities to clarify this and to clarify it with the words and the insights of the people who drafted the language in the Constitution. Hmm. And we never seemed to engage at any of the close calls. So James Madison, who was at the center of all of this, was the first president to nearly die in office. He was Hmm. basically on his deathbed with illness. And then his wife, Dolly Madison, uh, sends a letter to the Senate because they've already begun proceedings uh, to explore what it would look like for Elbridge Gary to end up um, as acting president. So she writes the letter saying he's made a full recovery, which she eventually does, but she exaggerates his well-being um, as a way to stop the proceedings. And then Andrew Jackson is shot at point blank by a man named Richard Lawrence, who thinks he's the king of England, the gun malfunctions, which had a one in 125,000 chance of happening. And Jackson, once he realizes he's not been shot, proceeds to beat his assailant with his cane. So you had those two instances where you still had framers of the Constitution and people who were at the Constitutional Convention. And it does not appear that any sort of clarifying conversation happened in response to either of those close calls
0: this theme of luck or fate and i want to ask you about that later in the conversation is really that's also something that you made me think about and and that that just comes across and and we'll i'll ask about that in a bit your paradigm so so that's the history Um, What makes, in your view, a bad or good accidental president? Does it have to do, you just mentioned this, with honoring the legacy, or is it building one's own path? How how did you make the judgment?
1: So each of the accidental presidents experiences the same handicap, which is they're completely aloof and not integrated into the administration that they end up inheriting and in charge of. So they all have that stumbling block out of the gate. Um, They also each have the issue of some portion of the cabinet couldn't stand them uh, for one reason or another. So the ones that there's two things that make some of them successful and make some of them failures. The ones who are most successful are the ones who find the balance between keeping the right members of the cabinet and getting rid of the wrong members of the cabinet. Because it's not just that, you know, these were maybe the right men or not the right men for the job. It's also about chemistry with the president. So if you look at LBJ, Kennedy's national security advisors couldn't stand him and that chemistry wasn't just there. And that's before you even get to whether or not they were the right people. But the second factor that determines their success is the context of the moment. So -hmm. if you look at Harry Truman as a a classic example of this, um, Harry Truman never should have been successful, given how ill prepared he was for the presidency in his 82 days. First of all, he's thrown onto the ticket. For no other reason than the Democratic Party bosses can't fathom the idea of Henry Wallace as president. They view him as far too liberal and a Soviet sympathizer. So everyone knows FDR is a dying man in 1944, but you can't talk about it. And it's it's, it's this sort of it's this secret that, that nobody ever articulates. So Truman, in his 82 days as vice president, not a single intelligence briefing, doesn't meet a single foreign leader, isn't briefed on the Manhattan Project. Isn't aware of what's going on at Yalta or the happenings of the war and only meets with FDR twice, mostly about superficial things. So then on April 12th, 1945, he finds himself president of the United States. The Battle of Okinawa is raging in the Pacific. He has to make a decision about dropping the bomb or potentially losing a million men with an invasion in Japan. Stalin's reneging on almost every one of his promises at Yalta. He has to develop an opinion about Stalin and Churchill and all of these world leaders, and he has to figure out where these countries are on a map. Um, and so how is it possible that a man like Truman was so successful? And what you conclude is that FDR's advisors, hmm. you know, the George Marshalls, the Dean Achesons, as much as they missed FDR and as much as they felt they had nothing in common as sort of Ivy League intellectuals with a provincial ah shucks politician from Missouri, the fate of the world rested on whether or not Harry Truman was successful. So you compare and contrast that with LBJ where the fate of the world did not rest on whether or not Vietnam was successful or not. And you see that reflected in a lot of the tensions between LBJ um, and his advisors. But then you contrast it with, you know, Andrew Johnson, who presided over one of the most important moments in our history, which was Reconstruction. And he completely botched it. So Andrew Johnson is kind of the anti Truman. Um, and then Truman is really this exceptional story. And George H.W. Bush, uh, before he passed away, told me in an interview that they expected very little from Truman. But, you know, he is somebody who was deployed in the Pacific, said he always believed that Harry Truman saved his life.
0: First of all, what a wonderful quote that is from uh, President Bush. But also, what an interesting way to think about it—that uh, you know, Andrew Johnson is is almost the reciprocal of Truman. I, I want to ask you about Johnson because his pre-presidential, pre-vice-presidential history was so strong, and and you really lay that out in, in incredible ways. But very quickly, because you were harsh, I thought on. LBJ, maybe – probably more harsh than I might have been, although you put your focus so strongly on that relationship with the advisors and so, you know, absolutely, point taken. In terms of results though, and I know you give him credit, does he deserve incredible credit for evolving from really an ignored vice president like all of them were to a powerful president who absolutely advanced so many of JFK's domestic goals – some of them, many of them, perhaps in ways that JFK might not have been able to himself. I thought you were a little harsh on LBJ. T- tell me why. So it's interesting.
1: I, I actually think that the criticism might be that I'm overly harsh on JFK. If I look, if I look at LBJ, I think there's no doubt that he he proved to be a great domestic president. You know, getting you know three pieces of yeah. landmark legislation passed including one before the 1964 election only he could have done that and the kennedys were prepared to pay lip service to civil rights but if you look at their reaction to the bombing in birmingham at the church yes uh, it was very clear that they weren't prepared to back it up with action they said just enough to be able to feel like they you know were 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 able to get um black people to 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 get behind them in the 1964 election but but It it lacked the it lacked the meat uh, and the legislative commitment that that Johnson exhibited. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, Bobby Kennedy eventually does one of the great 180 turnarounds on civil rights. But it's not until well after the 1964 election. And if you look at Vietnam, you know, the, the narrative often on LBJ is had Kennedy survived, you wouldn't have had civil rights in the 1960s, but you also wouldn't have had Vietnam. I'm not sure that last point is 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 true. I think that Kennedy was every bit as capable of going down the same slippery slope as Lyndon Johnson. It may have looked different and he may have been less predisposed to escalate to 500,000 troops. But remember, it's John F. Kennedy who more than doubles the foreign assistance into Vietnam. It's John F. Kennedy who escalates uh, the number of advisors a couple of days before his assassination. It's John F. Kennedy who supports, supports and backs the coup over Diem, Um, you know, where the the full effects of that hadn't fully played out. So I think that, that, that both Kennedy and Johnson were influenced by the idea of not losing Vietnam on their watch. And I think it's it's sort of an architecture of the guardians of Kennedy's reputation that we too often let him off the hook for this.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree on on the JFK point. Um, you know, I was just thinking more uh, more on LBJ. Though, like everyone else, I'm I'm just you know I'm waiting for Caro's last book in the series before I make my own final judgment <laughs> on him. Uh, let's talk about Andrew Johnson, who you mentioned before, and because he was he was such a bad president, many of us forget or or don't know what an incredibly Honorable Senator from Tennessee, he was. So tell me about that, and what changed? How did he, in your words, squander Reconstruction so badly?
1: Yeah. So I think if you look at if you look at Andrew Johnson and evaluate, so I set out to want to really vindicate Lincoln hmm. um, because the great stain on Lincoln's record is that even though back then the nominee of the party didn't select the vice president, Lincoln had a very active conspiratorial hand in um, being part of an intrigue to throw Hannibal Hamlin off the ticket and replace him with Andrew Johnson. And the simple argument is he needed a war Democrat from a border state um, because victory in 1864 um, seemed very, very unlikely. Um, But if you look back on the history, Andrew Johnson in in 1864, he had been the only Southern senator to stay loyal to the Union. He was revered in the North Lincoln used him like a celebrity jack in the box and couldn't get enough of the Andrew Johnson luster and fairy dust that that rubbed off on him. Mm -hmm. Um, And his Andrew Johnson's racism and the fact that he was a slave owner. It was really overshadowed by his love for the union and his recognition of the fact that the best way to reunite the union was to break the Confederacy. And the best way to break the Confederacy was to defeat slavery. Um, And to defeat defeat the Confederacy. So his rhetoric at the time that he became vice president was more forward leaning on civil rights um, and punishment of traitors than even Abraham Lincoln. He's also the governor, the military governor of Tennessee at much of the much risk to his own life. And there's this great moment where he emancipates the slaves in uh, Tennessee, implementing the Emancipation Proclamation. He's standing on the Capitol steps in Nashville, and he gets declared by a group of freedmen as the, quote, Black Moses. And he embraces that and declares himself the Black Moses. So then you wonder, what, what happened to this man? Did he have a 180 turn? And Andrew Johnson was born a racist and died a racist. It's just that so long as the Civil War raged on, um, it was about defeating the Confederacy. And then when the Civil War was over, it became about— putting the union back together, in which case his view was, let's just let the states deal with civil rights. Let's give amnesty to everybody, even though the states have voted back into power, all the old elements of the Confederacy, including the Confederate vice president, let's just get them seated in Congress. And there's this great moment with Andrew Johnson. Um, It's one of the most embarrassing moments in American history, where he delivers his vice presidential oath of office completely drunk. It's supposed to last less than a minute. It's a 17-minute drunken tirade in which he lashes out at the entire cabinet can't remember their names they try to rush the swearing in on the bible he kisses it and slobbers and drools all over it and then abraham lincoln who at the time has his head literally buried in his hands in embarrassment uh walks side by side with andrew johnson as they walk outside and to try to break the ice and ease the tension and awkwardness, he points out Frederick Douglass, who at the, at the time is a friend of Lincoln's and the most famous ex-slave in the country. Yeah, and Frederick yeah. Douglass, in his autobiography, writes, it, writes about that moment, about how he saw Andrew Johnson walking aside Lincoln and he thanked the heavens that Andrew Johnson wasn't president of the United States and declared that I saw the look in his eyes and the hatred at which he glared at me with and I realized he was no friend of my race. And what Frederick Douglass didn't realize at the time, uh, because he wasn't allowed into the, the, the chamber, is that Andrew Johnson was completely inebriated. So he did come to the right conclusion, but for the wrong reasons.
0: <laughs> and, and just and quickly wrapping up uh, on the evaluation of the best and the worst, if Andrew Johnson, I, I think was, you, you kind of put him at or, or near the bottom, um, your number one is Teddy Roosevelt. He he, mm-hmm. he did it the best. Why why Teddy? I mean I think we all know but, but from you, why Teddy? So Teddy
1: Roosevelt ends up as vice president as a punishment because the New York Party bosses can't deal with him anymore and they want to exile him to the political equivalent of Elba. Um, now, Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> is also the only accidental president who probably would have eventually become president in his own right and in fact he's the first accidental president to be elected in his own right in 19 – in 1904. Um, But Teddy Roosevelt, you know, I don't believe that had McKinley not been assassinated, the country was ready to elect somebody that progressive um, at that period. Now, they may have been, you know, three years later, and they certainly proved to be when 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 Teddy was elected in 1904. But um, his elevation in 1901, I do believe, accelerated the progressive movement in the country, which led to the trust busting and. Certain elements of social progress, which we now know, uh, which we now know quite well. But we should be thankful that Teddy Roosevelt didn't preside over a war. Um, Mm -hmm. As great as he is and as much as he's admired and as fascinating and colorful a character he is, um, the man just loved war too much to, to be commander in chief and preside over one.
0: And, and if he had presided over one, he might not have sat in the White House. He might have gone to the front lines. I mean, he's not a guy who would have, um, you know, wanted to avoid uh, action or the the ability to to shoot a gun, I, I don't think.
1: Well, one of the things I write about in The Accidental Presidents is when he was assistant secretary of the Navy in McKinley's first term, um, the secretary of the Navy ends up literally stepping out of the office for half a day to get back therapy. Um, and he's so concerned about Teddy Roosevelt as his number two that he literally instructs him not to take the country to war while he's gone. Yes. And as one biographer writes, Teddy Roosevelt immediately after the secretary of the Navy went to do his back therapy, uh, back therapy essentially gives what he described as an orgy of orders that mobilized the country for war against Spain. <laughs>
0: So, in addition to, to orgies of that sort, um, you, you write and you note so much about fate and luck, and some of it is overt. You talked about the, the misfiring of the gun. Um, you, you know, you didn't mention yet all of the assassination attempts um, that that failed on Andrew Johnson, um, mm-hmm. which was also fascinating, um, and and obviously just the whole title of the book, the whole concept of. Accidental presidents, and so in reading, you know, the book, it's it's impossible not to think about ideas like fate and luck, and I'm curious what you think about them. They're not exactly the same thing, and and I'm also kind of curious if your views evolved through, through the process of writing. Um, first, are you a fatalist? Would you say? And and second. Unluck, I've personally always believed in, in the old line that often gets attributed to Thomas Jefferson, um, though not fully proven, um, that, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, after researching these lucky ascendant presidents, do you believe in luck or do you believe we make our own luck?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. I think we're lucky that this only happened eight times. Um, because as I think I mentioned earlier, you have 19 instances where the president almost died in office. And when I say when I'm talking about close calls, I'm not talking about foiled plots and threatening letters. I'm talking about two presidents shot at point blank. Um, You know, I'm talking about multiple assassination attempts. Uh, I'm talking about a suicide bomber standing four feet from JFK as president elect and deciding not to pull the trigger in his pants because he saw too many children around. Hmm. Or I'm talking about FDR as president elect having five shots in 15 seconds fired at him, but a woman with her purse smacking the assassin and thwarting his aim. So he killed four people nearby instead of the president elect. I mean, that is serious luck. Um, and so, you know, if you look at you know how little thought the framers of the Constitution had given to presidential succession. And then, if you look at how subsequent politicians and leaders basically winged it, there's two conclusions that you can come to. You can say that we've been remarkably lucky that only Andrew Johnson was a catastrophe, um, you know, which is a fair conclusion. Or you can say that maybe the framers of the Constitution were onto something. Um, and what they proved to us with this case study, this long vulnerability of constitutional um, question, that maybe the Constitution as a living document is a much more powerful thing than we realize.
0: Are you a fatalist?
1: Um, I don't know if I'm a a fatalist. I think that um, our history would have been vastly different had Andrew Johnson not been elevated to the presidency by the bullet of John Wilkes Booth's gun. Um, When I say he was a catastrophe, um, we were supposed to get Abraham Lincoln's vision for Reconstruction. Uh, instead we got the last president to own slaves a man who didn't emancipate his own slaves until 7 months after the emancipation proclamation paved the way for the black codes and the jim crow laws which we're still suffering the repercussions of today
0: and to close out Jared looking forward and you you write about this at the end of the book um, as you think about the 2020 election Um, Any hope in 2024, let's say, or 28, just kind of going forward, do you you have any hope that we will consider the VP slot as more than a political tactic and that we'll think more deeply or differently about succession? I mean, you suggest ways that this could change largely through the political parties, um, but you don't seem to think that it's highly likely. Um, What what are your thoughts?
1: I think there's zero evidence that we've learned our lesson from this at all. (laughs) Um, and I think it's a consequence of two things. One, when you're on the political ropes and you're trying to get a bump in the polls, that's all you're thinking about when you're in the middle of a heated campaign season. So, you know, when you hear about candidates wanting to come out of the gate with a running mate or, you know, you have, you know, choices like Sarah Palin in modern times, what you conclude is we have not drawn the right lessons from the accidental presidents. But the other thing that's amazing to me is we are in the longest period of time in history without a president dying in office. And you may have three you, you certainly you, you have a, an incumbent who's in his seventies and you have two potential front runners on the Democratic side who are both in their late seventies. So if there was ever an election that we should be thinking about the vice presidency as more than just a way to get a bump in the polls, it's this one. But it's a modern day phenomenon for the party's nominee or you know, the candidate to choose their own running mate. Historically, it's been the choice of the party and they've been nominated very separately. And it's oftentimes been imposed on the candidate without them really having much of a say in it. And I think that there's some virtue in that
0: one more question about you that came to mind. And please, I mean this in only the most endearing of ways. You write these books, you've had these incredible roles in public policy. You also are CEO of Jigsaw. So you're one of the few people who are both a policy wonk and a technology nerd do you identify yourself as, as more one than the other? Do you hate the terms so much? And I, I've just succeeded in the last 30 seconds of this conversation in offending you. How do you bring those two together?
1: No, not offended at all. I, I view my career as a, a portfolio of curiosities. And I'm always trying to make sure that I'm properly hedged against my different curiosities. So right now, I'm CEO of a of a tech organization. And I'm constantly thinking about innovation in the future, which I'm very long on in my portfolio. And yet I have this love for history. So the way some people deal with this is they meditate or they go to the gym or they <laughs> join a basketball team. I dig into history. And for me, digging into history is good for the soul. It's something I wake up every day thinking about. Um, and when you work on a project for five years, you find remarkable ways to tie it you know, to your interests. So, you know, I like you know thinking about you know issues that I'm confronting as a leader at work, and asking the question, what would someone like you know Harry Truman have done, or what would some what would someone like you know Teddy Roosevelt have done?
0: I love that phrase, a portfolio of curiosities. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna quote that, Jared. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation, and thank you for the book. Uh, just a terrific read.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Jared Cohen. My thanks to Jared for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on iTunes. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.